Here we are, Oscar fans. It is Oscar week. The ceremony is this Sunday, and I'm excited to be joined by Linda Napikoski to talk about two of the remaining Best Picture nominees that we have not yet covered, Marriage Story and Little Women. Linda, thanks for joining. Hi, great to be here. So I know that you are a huge film fan that tries to work through the Oscar nominees every year. We're about to dive into these movies um, with some depth, but just overall, how did you feel that, that Marriage Story and Little Women fit into the overall Best Picture slate this year? Well, both of them are not going to win Best Picture, and yet, in a way, are these widely liked films that are really deserving of their Best Picture nominations. So they're kind of these just solid entries in the race. Definitely agree with that. Um, I feel like both of these are not going to win. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of people that would not be unhappy if either one won. I think that's true. Although I think there is a little bit of a, a contingent that would be unhappy if Little Women were to win Best Picture. Well, first of all, I think there's a huge contingent that would be surprised just because I don't think anyone thinks it's going to win Best Picture. But you never know what's going to happen with preferential voting. But I think there are people who strongly feel that Little Women isn't the best picture because of their issues with the timeline jumps. And I'm sure that's something we're going to talk about. You know, so on the other hand, I think Marriage Story is more of a widely pleasing one that people like saw it and they loved it and it touched their heart and all of that. So I think they're different from each other in that way. Like one is more divisive maybe, or it's not really polarizing. It's not that extreme, but just had some people who were kind of critical of it. Yeah, no question. Um, no question. And with the preferential balloting, um, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of shakes out, but why don't we get into it and start with the one that is, probably more seen just because it was at home on Netflix, and that is Noah Baumbach's marriage story. You're being so much like your father. Do not compare me to my father. I didn't compare you to him. I said you were acting like him. You're exactly like your mother. Everything you're complaining about her, you're doing. You're suffocating Henry. First of all, I, I love my mother. She was a wonderful mother. Just repeating what you told me. Secondly, how dare you compare my mother to my mother? So Noah Baumbach, right? I mean, it's a very Noah Baumbach movie, and he... He does his thing and he does it well. Some people really, really, really love the Noah Baumbach, right? Do you think he's off-putting to some people for being so wrapped up in his sort of New York self? I think in some ways this is the least off-putting of his work. It's the most universal. He's kind of, obviously some of his earlier work had a really hard edge. You know, it's it's interesting, like a lot of the reading that I had done before I saw the movie was like, watch out, this is really brutal, this is really hard to watch. I actually didn't find it to be hard to watch at all. I mean, obviously there's, divorce is a difficult topic, but the movie kind of flows in a way that I didn't find it like excruciating. Did you find it to be off-putting in, in that way? No, in fact, I think one of the things missing from the conversation about it is that it's actually um, funny. A lot of the time, in a lot of its parts. And I feel like a lot of people are forgetting to talk about that when they talk about the movie. But, as, but also the, the thing about the Noah Baumbach thing is also that um, he even manages to make it a cent the central plot point in this story, this whole like New York versus L.A. thing, right? It's about their divorce and where are they going to have their child 
but all his little like digs at LA, you know, and in like that are him. I mean, he's just this like New York guy. And I think it's interesting. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, that's why I say, I, I'm like, feel like Bombaki needs to be an adjective because it just, there's, it, there's something he's becoming this, this, this thing, this essence in his movies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the space. I, you know, I actually had read something that, um, or listened to a podcast or something recently where they were talking about that in a way that I hadn't thought about, which was as far as it's Oscar prospects, being really anti-LA probably isn't helpful to yeah. getting a lot <laughs> right? of the votes. I, go there. I agree that it's funny. I think that like, this is a movie to me that, you know, and I think there's people that would be upset to hear me say this because a lot of people didn't like this movie. I really liked Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing's Missouri. It's a movie that a lot of cinephiles, for whatever reason, really didn't like. But there was a, there was a lot of ways that this kind of reminded me of that in terms of having kind of that stylized cadence of dialogue that you're talking about, sort of funny at times, even though it's dealing with a serious topic. And then also a movie that's sort of built around its tentpole scenes. And that's kind of where I wanted to start was just some of the scenes in this movie that really stick with you and you remember. What jumped out at you the most in terms of kind of some of the memorable scenes? How are we on avoiding spoilers right now? Are we like long past that? That is a great question. We're, we are long past it. As okay. an Oscar completist podcast, I do want to caveat that all the Best Picture episodes are spoiler spoiler episodes. So we will be spoiling both of these movies. Okay. Um, I mean, I think one of the scenes, if not the scene of Marriage Story, is going to be the scene where they sort of break down together, mostly Adam Driver but really when they fight and scream at each other when she comes to his apartment, right? I mean, that scene is everything and it's devastating. I think that has to be sort of the number one, the scene of that movie. Would you agree with that? It's, it's interesting that you, so I mean, it's definitely one of the very memorable scenes. Like there's, I definitely don't disagree with that. I have three scenes and I actually don't have that on my list, but I can understand where, especially kind of from the emotional side, that's kind of the peak of both performances um, and especially Adam Driver. Okay. Well now this is interesting because I actually was going to add one more thing that's sort of a theory I come to that movie and away from that movie with, but now I want to hear your three scenes before I say that. So <laughs> about oh, okay. like why I picked that scene. Now I want to hear what your three are. Interesting. Okay. Well, my first one's the opening. So the eight minute monologue introducing okay. both of these characters. I feel like that, I mean, anybody who kind of like watched the trailer ahead of time, which I did, like you kind of have seen elements of that, but the way that it sets up the story, especially it's so elongated. It's such like, it's really the only opportunity that you get to see these characters outside of their divorce. You know, this isn't a movie and not that there are a lot of movies in the history of cinema about divorce anyway. But if you think about, I don't know, some of the more famous Kramer versus Kramer or, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, you tend to see some piece of what was the marriage like before it fell apart. And the opening right. here is really the only chance to do that. Yeah, I mean, I actually love the opening. And um, I, I kind of tried to go into the movie uh, knowing as little as possible. I, I mean, I know that's, I always try to do that. Like I try yeah. not to know too much before, you know? So I kind of, yeah. And I really liked how it started 
because you've got to have this positive feeling about them and, and know who they are. Right. I mean, before seeing them get divorced. Yeah. So I, I, it was a great opening of a film actually. And just the contrast from going to that, to then having them in the counselor's office, like the divorce is already starting and you're like, all right, here's where the story starts. I just, I just liked as a way to start it off. Yeah. So that was my first one. The second one about midway through is the courtroom scene where you have Ray Liotta and Laura Dern kind of using the mundane day-to-day experiences that you've seen up to this point in the movie and sort of weaponizing them against the other character in a way that's almost like a self-parody and comical and like farcically elevated, but at the same time kind of is the most grounded, like core conflicting scene of the movie other than the one you described where the two of them are, are arguing face to face. I just, I thought that was like one of the best scenes in any movie all year. Yeah. And you mean like a self parody about the divorce lawyers, right? Yeah. The whole process. Cause this is ultimately sort of a movie like about the process of getting divorced even more than just a movie about a, a specific divorce. I felt. Right. And how, and so that scene, what, like, well, first of all, it is one of the examples of what I was saying, right? Like sometimes you're laughing like out loud at this movie, even though it's very serious <laughs> what they're talking about. But, but anyway, like the way they did it, obviously great performances from the lawyers. And it's interesting that we, you're calling it a self parody of the divorce lawyers, which they clearly were, but what they were doing is also what we, and by we, I mean humanity, I guess, do <laughs> in relationships, right? Which is like, when you have a fight, like go back and like pick out this thing that someone said three months ago on a Tuesday that you never went, and you're, but you did this thing and now I'm throwing it back in your face. And, and But it was like their lawyers doing it for them. And I thought that was a pretty genius level he took it to. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the ultimate keeping score. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so angry. Like, so this is the thing about that. I, and that gets to my overall feelings about the movie, because I was just so angry at at um, Scarlett Johansson's character for, like, going to lawyers in the first place, because he said they weren't they weren't going to do it without lawyer, you know? And then you, that's the scene where you just are so overwhelmed with how bad right <laughs> the divorce lawyers can be like oh the experience of it and you just sit there I sat there anyway just thinking like why does this happen <laughs> like why do we as a society even do divorces this way and I wanted to just you know I don't know like crawl into the screen and throttle everyone and be like don't be like this yeah no absolutely I think that's exactly what what Bob was going for and obviously Scarlett uh, Johansson's character is kind of the first one to take the step of bringing on a lawyer, maybe kind of partially without even knowing sort of what consequences that'll have. But the next escalation is when Adam Driver kind of eschews Alan Alda's character, who's trying to take a more pragmatic, conciliatory approach and kind of escalates to going back to Ray Liotta's character, obviously spending his grant um, that he's gotten for his for his theater company and instead using it sort of pedally to to kind of turn it into this all out all out knuckle brawl yeah but it, the alan alda lawyer was not competing at the laura dern lawyer level i mean he just simply was like 
yeah, now it's a big problem that you've got the apartment here and then you're whatever. And then he'd be like, but you told me to get the thing here. And he's like, yeah, I did. Yeah, it's real. And you're, you're just sitting there going, oh, my God, this lawyer's not going to help you. Like, right. So, I mean, how could you blame him for doing that? It's a it's a really interesting question, and I think it sort of jumps to toward the end of the movie. But I think it's a it's an interesting thing to think about because what ultimately does it get Adam Driver to to escalate this means? Because he still ends up having to go to L.A. Basically, they end up splitting it basically fifty fifty. Laura Dern's character takes I think like one extra weekend or something. And Scarlett Johansson doesn't want it, and that's when you see it kind of pass over her face, like oh, I made this into this battle. Like this lawyer who had me, you know, sobbing into her tissues in her office the first day and like understanding me along the way was just trying to win against her friend who she kisses when she sees him in the courtroom, like hallway, like, oh, we go to the same parties. We're like these lawyers who mingle in these same circles, but it's just like, it's a game to them. But for the two characters getting divorced is real people's lives. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's an interesting look at kind of the structural incentives. I, and other scenes when they're sitting in the, this isn't one of my favorite scenes, but a scene that kind of plays into this dynamic is when they're sitting in the conference room when Alan Alda's still representing Adam Driver, and they're sort of arguing really harshly about the particulars of the divorce, and then they pause to get lunch, and it's just very colloquial. And it's, you can just tell that it's like, this is purely a day at the office for the lawyers, and yet it's like the most important thing in either of the clients lives yeah i liked that scene too at that part where they kind of j- yeah it, you're right it was like a total you know pause okay lunch menu you know <laughs> yeah the same way we might in a different job be like clocked in somewhere and that it was just totally like put on hold yeah yeah i thought it was really interesting and then so i'd say those were the first two is the opening sequence that I really like that courtroom scene and then going to the end the final scene just bringing the letter back and the reading I thought was just a body blow and also just a great way to to wrap up the movie yeah I agree with you on that too actually so I guess I guess I am basically agreeing with you about those being incredible scenes even if they aren't the one I pick out as the epitome scene because I think the beginning and the end are both great how like finally we get to, he gets to hear you know when she refused to read it at the beginning and all of that so it was a little i don't know a little tug <laughs> that the heartstrings there for sure i guess before i leave the script i did just want to come back you said like once you kind of heard what my scenes were you had a comment or a question kind of regarding the fact that your favorite was the the fight yeah so I really realized this after I saw the movie. It was so much about the kid. I know that in a lot of real life divorces, you, we kind of have this idea or we hear this idea of don't use the children as pawns, right? Like, you know, don't, don't badmouth your partner to the child, like to the child. Um, I know that's, it's such a huge part of so many divorces, but after the movie, I found myself just like wanting it to be more about the two of them. Like I want someone to make this movie, a movie called like Divorce Story, where they don't have a kid. And I just want to see the breakup between a couple that wants to truly stay friends and part of each other's lives, not because they have a kid, 
but because they had what was between them. I keep going back to that scene where they have this breakdown and it's one of the few scenes where it isn't about their son. And so that's what I mean, that that theory that I sort of have in the aftermath of seeing the movie developed about the movie. And I think, I don't know, most people probably are just kind of like, well, yeah, of course, it's totally about the kid. But I'm like, but no, (laughs) I want more of them. And it was really a theory that started to gel in my mind afterward. That's interesting. I mean, the kid is definitely a pawn. I think you you mentioned that. I actually have the most of the analysis I've heard about the movie and, and sort of my take is that this is probably like the least kid centric divorce movie that I can think of. I mean, again, there's not a lot of divorce movies overall, but if you think about, let's say, well, Noah Baumbach's last movie, the kid in the, or the squid and the whales, obviously from the perspective of the child, Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire is sort of about Robin Williams wanting to spend time with his children. E.T. is just clearly only the kid almost, and he's impacted by the divorce, but the story is all the child. And here, the kid is, I would say, probably the least developed of the characters. He's sort of a MacGuffin almost in a way, or he's like, to your point, sort of what they're battling over. I didn't feel like I got to know the child's character. Like, did you feel like a connection to, I think, Henry was his name? His name was Henry. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the things that might have prevented me from getting to know him was that he reminded me so much of Danny in The Shining. Like the entire time I was watching that movie, I'm like, I just kept expecting him to ride down a hallway and on a tricycle, you know, like I, I, and I can't believe no one else is talking about this. I'm like, is that like his long lost son or something or And so that was a little bit distracting for me. But um, another question then maybe is maybe that scene that I talked about where they really just scream and kind of have it all out. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe the using the kid, quote unquote, is not in like a pawn against the other way, but almost in a way to stay close to the other like every like they're going to grasp at something. Maybe it's easier for them because they have a kid. So of course they still have to talk to each other and figure out ways to still talk to each other, you know, and maybe that's a relief to them. Yeah, no, that is true. That's an interesting take. You know, we both said that we don't think this is going to win, but do you have any sort of overarching thoughts on just like where, how you'll remember this movie or how you think it'll hold up over time? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that a lot because for a while I thought just from the buzz it was getting and stuff that it might, get a screenplay like it might win for screenplay but I don't know I also just don't think that's possible because of the competition that it has but I did think about that as like how it was going to hold up I could see this as being a movie that like people will come across on cable and watch again or you know have on their kind of like list of oh yeah have you seen Marriage Story you know like when they're talking to their friend in the college dorm kind of movie yeah, no, I think that's probably true. Cool. Well, then, why don't we move on and uh, talk about the other movie on the agenda today, and that is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I've always known I would marry Rich. Why should I be ashamed of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of, as long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. 
Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. So just as orientation, how familiar were you with either Louisa May Alcott's novel or the 1994 adaption, or I guess one, any of the other many adaptions of this movie prior to this version? Little Women is one of the books that I read as a kid and then went back and read as an adult at some point to see if I really liked it. And I, I think I did. I definitely would say that I was familiar with the novel. And I know that that was definitely an issue for some people who saw it who felt like they didn't know what was going on, which was not an issue at all for me. And I didn't think it was only because I'm familiar with the novel, but the more I hear about it, I don't know. I really think that being familiar with the novel does make a difference. Did you feel like that helps you follow the nonlinear storytelling approach? So I saw the movie with someone who hadn't read the novel. And after the movie, when we had our first conversation, and this person mentioned the time jumps, I was like, what? <laughs> it totally huh. was caught me completely by it. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't even, that was weird in the movie. I didn't even notice that it was weird. I thought it was so great that it didn't start with the Christmas isn't Christmas without any presents. I was so happy that that came later. And then I'm like, oh, I guess I have to say that clearly being familiar with the novel had that some kind of advantage but you know here's my thing about that when you're thinking about a movie that got some oscar nominations including best picture that's based on a book that tells its entire story by jumping through several different periods of time and going back and forth and back and forth uh you're kind of talking about the irishman Hmm. i mean why is that movie not confusing for people then you know that that is interesting and i do think in the irishman they similarly don't orient you right like especially the road trip um that joe pesci and uh robert de niro and their wives are on they don't really make clear like exactly what that is until later in the movie Um, i will say that little women i think part of it too is that you have the same actors trying to be very different ages whereas i know that there's de-aging technology in the irishman you know i think kind of using the same actresses and they're, sometimes they're supposed to be 12 and sometimes they're supposed to be like 20. I wonder if maybe that's part of it. But it's a fair point. It is interesting to me to consider like why it works, quote unquote, for the Irishman, but doesn't work, quote unquote, for Little Women. But yeah, there's definitely been some talk about, especially uh, Florence Pugh. And Florence Pugh, I hope I'm saying her name right. I feel like it's one of those names yeah, I've read right. so much more than I've heard at this point. <laughs> but... um. Like, I like I we're going to start hearing it a lot more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she was amazing. I thought she was the best thing about the movie. Like, I legit want to go stalk her IMDb and watch everything she's ever been in. You know, I mean, she was great. But she was clearly not, you know, 11 or 12 <laughs> in the 11 or 12-year-olds. And I mean, I think she did the best she could to be younger and older. But yeah, I know. It wasn't quite perfect. <laughs> It sounds like overall it didn't cause any problems for you, like the nonlinear approach or, or even using the same actresses. Did you feel that it added anything? Like, did you feel like there was a benefit from from these approaches? I thought there was a total benefit from the nonlinear approach. I think her, her entire conception of the story, by framing it that way, brought a new perspective to it. Instead of 
going in a chronological order and watching these girls grow into little women, it was like this idea that this is a woman telling a story and that these parts of lives were the formative things that made her tell this story that she's telling as a woman. I mean, I, I see it as very purposeful and actually successful on Greta Gerwig's part. I, I really don't think it's that confusing because you have these like two really big clues. Like there's the whole like short hair, long hair thing going on <laughs> and some parts with the Joe yeah. character. And then there's Beth and she's either alive or she's dead. And if she's alive, it was <laughs> earlier. <laughs> if she's dead, then it's later. I mean, it's a really big clue that I wasn't sure why that was so confusing for some people. But you know how at some point, like some things are just things that people kind of can be expected to know about. Like, I mean, if it was something with the Bible and you reference like Old Testament, New Testament, mm -hmm. just being a culturally aware person, like you're going to maybe know there is an Old Testament, that that's a thing that exists. And there is a New Testament that exists. Right. Or something like, that. like the major classic novels are a little bit on that level, right? Like if you referred to like a Dickens orphan or something like that, maybe you've never read Oliver Twist, but you're gonna have this idea in your head of what like a Charles Dickens orphan is or something like that. And mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's fair game to expect people to have just like the tiniest smidge of familiarity with Little Women. That's interesting. Yeah. And that, that is, it would be interesting to hear like from Greta Gerwig kind of who her audience was, like whether she was intending it for people who were already familiar with the story or, or kind of trying to make it accessible for a new generation. Mm -hmm. I didn't find it to be impossible to follow by any means. I think like the first maybe 20 minutes, I really didn't have any idea what was going on. I think once <laughs> you sort of figure out the like what she's doing i generally just like nonlinear storytelling as a mechanism like across like any form of film i mean i just thought the whole thing was it was such a fresh take on the book yeah instead of going chronologically like you know how when Baz Luhrmann makes Moulin Rouge or something and he, he very specifically tries to make things feel contemporary like because he wants us to hear like how radical it was to like dance the can can or whatever, you know, he wants us, he wants us to yeah. hear it like, like gangster rap or something. I don't know. Like he, those are some of the things that he said, you know, about that movie. I mean, that's how I was seeing Greta Gerwig's, you know, take, like she wants these people to be alive and not feel like characters in a historical period, right? Like she wanted us to see them as girls and women who are very much alive I think that by crushing the expected chronological narrative, that was like a, such a huge part of a way that she did that. Like she couldn't put in, you know, cell phones and Taylor Swift music, but she could upend our expectations in different ways to make it feel fresh, therefore to make it feel contemporary. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then obviously the the other kind of contemporization is the end and the way that she sort of changed the <laughs> the meaning of the whole ends. Yeah, what do you think about that? I think, it, I mean, it, it seems in some ways more consistent with Joe's character. And I think that's partially why she did it. I think that she was trying, I mean, she clearly was taking the uh, a really strong stance of like Joe representing Louisa May Alcott in yes. a weird way in a weird way also like 
Greta Gerwig herself um, as an artistic storyteller, also being like Joe, telling this story, um, and Louisa May Alcott, like in a way, I, I think there's all three of them kind of in the mix in the way she wrote and directed the story. I mean, I think she's not wrong, right? Like we know Louisa May Alcott was smart and, you know, had to face all the constraints that, I mean, and she was lucky, right? I mean, she moved in circles where she at least had access to hang out with and educated people and be educated, you know, and stuff like that. And still you've got constraints. And, and I, so I thought it was a great choice to, 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 to frame the movie the way she did start with, you know, Joe getting her book or trying to get her book public, you know, like to plunge you in right there and then kind of end with like, look, we're going to have to make these sacrifices, whether it's in life, whether it's getting married, whether it's in our art, whether it's like some weird combination of all of those, right? I mean, it was like a really like smart way to bring all that together. She just, that, and I think also um, the way she had both Laura Dern and in a weird way, Meryl Streep's characters being these respectable women and all that stuff, but just letting a little bit of rebellion, just a little pushback against the, against all the expectations of them yeah it was yeah it was a super interesting take i think that like it was i think i said this already um on another episode but like if lion king or aladdin is like the lowest form of adapting a screenplay this is like <laughs> the highest form of adapting a screenplay like it's basically reimagining something to modernize it um so i agree yeah it was it was definitely unique and and a movie that i think if I had to predict, we'll get recognized for screenplay and probably nowhere else. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think that too, except for I'm starting to be like a little bit worried about that because Jojo Rabbit, right, has like yeah. buzz, you know? And, and I thought that movie was really good actually too. So yeah, the screenplay categories are always hard to predict. On the flip side, yeah, they, they are tough to predict. I think on the flip side, like Laura Dern has appeared to have best supporting actress in the bag for months and months. And then it seems like some of the late breaking buzz is if anybody's going to pull an upset in one of those categories, that Florence Pugh is, is probably the most likely. Which I think would be kind of so awesome. And it's no offense intended to Laura Dern whatsoever, but it would be so awesome if Florence Pugh was. I mean, it just would be incredible. I think she was so good. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully something changes this year and it's not just the chalk and who everybody knows is going to win already. Right. I mean, do you think either one of these would be enough people's second favorite to be a best picture in the preferential voting or no? It's a really interesting question. So I think that I don't think either of one of these are going to win. I think that the two elements of these that I think people are under rating, I think starting with marriage story is the Netflix machine. They have been incredibly effective this year in getting their films nominated, right? Like if you look up and down and you see Klaus 
nominated an animated feature. Nobody thought Klaus was going to be nominated for anything. I Lost My Body was nominated from Netflix. Obviously, Marriage Story and The Irishman were sort of the two big bets. You had the big pope or the two popes they didn't get into picture, but they did get actors. And then I guess Dolomite is my name was the big miss. But I still think that Netflix, just the amount that they're going to campaign and and try to push their entries, I feel like maybe is being a little bit overlooked on Marriage Story. And then Little Women, I think it's what you're saying, which is that it's not it's a movie that I think a lot of people liked a lot. I think there's kind of universal recognition that you know, a lot of people wish that Greta Gerwig would have been nominated and she wasn't. And so when I think that people sit down to fill out their ballots, I I agree that not a lot of people are going to pick it first. I do think that it will be in the top half, let's say, of most ballots. If that's enough, I don't think it's going to be, but but I do think it's an interesting thought. What what do you think? Um, well, I've been kind of saying for a while and I'm sticking to it as we're getting really close to the actual day that I think Parasite is going to win Best Picture specifically because I think it's going to be everyone's second favorite when it's not their first favorite. So because of that, obviously I have already like taken that second place is already taken in my mind by Parasite. And so that leaves third place for Marriage Story or Little Women. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think people are going to, who feel bad about Greta Gerwig are going to vote for screenplay, not yeah. for best yeah. picture. So I agree. I agree with that overall. Um, well, listen, Linda, thank you for taking the time to talk through both of these movies. It'll be interesting to see what happens just, uh, what, six days from now. Yeah, of course. It's going to be fascinating. <laughs> and thank you so much for talking with me and letting me talk with you. Mm-hmm.